Moses, the way of an intercessor. Lesson five. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask that once again you would allow us your grace to receive the word as it is in truth, the word of God and not the word of any man. Father, you said that the scripture, none of it is of any private interpretation. None of it is of any private interpretation, Father. It's for all of us. It's for all of us because you're a whosoever God. You said whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Father, there's no limits except the limits we place upon ourselves and the faith that we release or don't release. So I just ask, Father, as we look into this again, that um, you would help us, that you would speak to us by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, you would come and breathe upon these words and these scriptures and make them come alive to us, that impartation would happen, Father, that we would receive the spirit of faith, that we would receive the revelation, Father, of what it means to have you with us and all that we do. So, Lord, we trust in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We're asking you for help from heaven today, Father, unashamedly asking you for help from heaven I ask you for help from heaven. Holy Spirit, please come and teach us. Guide us into truth. Show us things to come. Speak to us, every single one of us, individually. Cause our hearts and our minds to be open that we might be receptive to the word of truth that is able to save our souls. Our souls need saving, Lord. They really do. Our souls need saving, Father. Our spirits born again. Our souls need saving, Father. They need delivering from all of the traditions of this world and the way man thinks. We need to be delivered from that, Father, and we need to think like you've called us to think. And yet, Father, you've seen us all, you've concluded us all in unbelief so that you might have mercy upon us. And there's just so much, Father, that we learn and we glean as we look at these men and women that you used. So, Father, in this training, this 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 calling to intercede, this calling to pray, I'm asking that you would help us, Father, to go with the same armament and the same weaponry and the same, uh, just the same mindset, Father, that you had to instill in these that you used so mightily in centuries gone by. So speak to us today. We give you the right to speak to us today, Father. We say, speak on, Holy One. Speak to each of us individually in our own circumstance and our own situation. And guide us and help us to simply receive the word as it is in truth again, like I said, Father, the word of God. Oh, so I praise you today and I just welcome you, Holy Spirit. I yield myself to you again and I ask for your great mercy to help the word of God come alive. In Jesus' name, I thank you for it. Amen. 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 I want you to turn back to Exodus 3. Then as we continue looking at Moses, the training of an intercessor, point six, the questions... And the complaints of Moses, and I'll just read where we left off. Let me read from um, Exodus 3 again to put us back in the picture. Moses sees the bush burning with fire. In verse 3, Exodus 3, 3 says, And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. 
God said, Do not come near. Put your shoes off your feet, for the place in which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In other words, I'm the same God that appeared to them. I'm now appearing to you. And Moses had his face, hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely, surely, surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cries because of their taskmasters and oppressors. And I know their sorrows and their sufferings and trials. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand and power of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and a large, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of plenty to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the Israelites has come to me, and I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. And of course, then he says to Moses, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And of course, the first question of Moses is, Who am I? Everybody say it. Who am I? That's the question that resonates throughout all history, that every believer that's ever attempted to do anything for God winds up saying at some point, who am I? I remember Cindy years ago said, um, she said, if you've ever want to know that you know that you know that you know that you know that you've heard the voice of a devil, just ask yourself, have you ever heard this question come? Who do you think you are? Because that's what he'll challenge you with every time. Because he says, who do you think you are? And of course, most of us don't know who we are <laughs> other than by natural situations that have defined our life by our own virtue of our own experiences. And so because we only go in the strength of who we see ourselves as naturally, we often do very little for God. But Moses said, who am I, in verse 11, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God's answer is in verse 12. God said, I will surely be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that I've sent you when you brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. So the answer of who I am was answered by God saying, you're the man that I will be with. Hallelujah. Amen. Somebody say amen. Make me feel good in here. All right. Amen. <laughs> Now, I'm going to go back and just start to read point A. Who am I? Moses' first response is, who am I? His own sense of smallness compared to the great issue that is being considered. How can I make a difference in such a thing? Then this quote again from F.B. Meyer, where he said, there was something more than humility here. There was a tone of self-deprecation, which was inconsistent with the true faith in God's selection and appointment. Surely it is God's business to choose his special instruments, and when we are persuaded that we are in the line of his purpose, we have no right to question the wisdom of his appointment. To do so is to depreciate his wisdom or to doubt his power and willingness to become all that is necessary to complete our need. Hallelujah. I don't know how many times you and I have to hear it, but the fact is we have to hear it because faith cometh by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. Remember that classic verse, it does not say faith comes by having heard one time. Faith comes, the Greek word, remember, is a multiple. It means over and over and over, a continual hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And all through Scripture, no matter who you study, no matter where you go in Scripture, 
You know, this is the simple question that God always tries to, or the simple answer that God always tries to bring to humanity's question about who they are. He's simply saying over and over again, you're somebody I'm with. If I'm asking you to do something, that's the might, that's the power that's going to put you over, not your own talent, not your own skill. So you and I have to be persuaded beyond doubt, as I always say. We have to be persuaded, not just attempt to do something with the head, but we have to be persuaded in our spirit that what we're set about, what we're set to, is in the purpose and the mind of God, and that we are actually being called to fulfill a part of it. Now, in the midst of all of that, this is why I say over and over again, we have to have an extreme and an aggressive humility because you can't afford to adopt some messianic complex where you begin to think that it's by your might and by your power that you're going to do something. We are the clay. He is the potter. He's shaping and forming us, trying to bring us into a position where we can be used by him. And we're constantly, either in the Bible teaches, that we're either in the crucible or we're in the furnace. We're in one of those two arenas where we're learning if we're actually after God because God's constantly in the midst of his love in the midst of the fire of his love in the process of refining us and building us into more and more of what he can use. Now, so I just want to go down. 1 Samuel 14, 6 is but Jonathan is going to go down to the camp of the Philistines and he speaks to his armor bearer about the fact that they're going to go down there and check out what's happening in the camp of the Philistines. But this is the attitude, of course, they had, this wonderful scripture in 1 Samuel 14, 6, where Jonathan turns to his armor bearer and says, well, let us go down and look. He said, for there is nothing to prevent the Lord. Now, and again, as an intercessor, if God's going to use us in prayer, there's nothing to prevent the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, let's make a decision to believe that that is the truth. Somebody say that's the truth. It is not a big deal for God. There's nothing to prevent the Lord. There is nothing to prevent the Lord from saving by many or by few. And again, the heartbeat, the lowest common denominator of this whole message of intercession that the Bible teaches is again, always found in the singular, not in the plural. What I mean is again, Isaiah 59, God looked and wondered that there was no man singular. Ezekiel, no man singular. Jeremiah, no man singular. No places of plural. There's something about one individual who dares to take upon himself the covenant that God has allowed man to walk in. One individual who will stand before God and not worry about what man says. One individual who will not be bowed down by the circumstances of the world, who will not allow the voices that are in the earth to speak louder to them than the voice of God, that one person can change a nation. That's what the Bible says over and over again. History has proven it. We've seen individuals whose faith, whose heartbeat before God have changed nations. They're still changing nations today after they're dead. Hallelujah. Aren't they? I mean, they're still, their testimony lives on by virtue of the fact they had something that went beyond the norm. It's nothing to God. There's nothing to prevent God to save by many or by few. So this whole question, who am I? See, you're a person that God is with. This is something we have to get a hold of. Point two, I've got down there, God's answer to Moses, I will surely be with you, as he said in verse 12. This is always the difference maker. Our enemies would like us to consider only our natural assets. Our enemies would like us to consider only our natural assets. 
The Lord God wants us to only consider Himself and His unlimited resources that are at our disposal through our faith. You can't live for God based upon your natural assets. This is why, again, whether it be in any area, remember when, we, when I taught those eight hours on stewardship and I taught on those eight hours of finances, remember the question I asked from the beginning? I asked at every session. Does anybody here remember what the question was when I taught on money? Exactly. This is one of the things. If you want to find out what's really in your heart, ask yourself this question. What would you do for God if money wasn't an issue? Because money's always an issue. The point is you have to get that out over here and set it aside because the first thing you do, the first thing that happens is the moment you step, step up to do something for God, whether it be money or whatever, I'm just saying the limitations of your natural assets present themselves to you loudly and clearly. They will tell you that you don't have enough money. They will tell you that you're not the right gender. They will tell you that you're not the right race. They will tell you that you don't have the right education. They will tell you whatever, but I guarantee you it is something that will be told you because the issue is, you see, you must be silenced. You must not find out. This is hell's greatest, greatest, greatest strategy. You must not find out who you are. You must not believe that you're someone that God is with. You must not believe that you're someone that God favors. You must not believe that. We must make sure that you don't believe it. All, it's, all you have to do is think for a moment and you can be right in the midst of the committee room of hell because they've used the same bait for so many centuries. The issue is don't allow people to begin to think that God really means what he said when he said, I will be with you, I will never forsake you, I will walk with you every day of your life. I'm as far away as your faith. I'm as close to you as you want me to be. Don't let them discover that this is true. Bring all kinds of things to cause doubt, to flourish, and faith to become feeble. Just don't allow them to dare to believe that God is who He says He is. So we're having, like I said over and over again, to we, we, we got to get our minds renewed, metamorphosized, changed the way we think. And again, because so few think like the Bible says to think, anybody who does attempt to begin to think like the Bible thinks, the rest of the world, much less the body of Christ, thinks you're nuts. So it's a battle. It's an upward, it's an upward climb, you know. But nevertheless, the climb is there. This is why over and over again when it comes to prayer, I keep hammering you with this thing. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Practice it as in the presence of God alone. Don't go running out around, shooting your mouth off, talking about what superwoman of faith you are. They're always trying to commit, you know, persuade everybody to the latest revelation you have. Learn the keys. Learn the joy. Learn the awesomeness of the secret place of God. You have to get that into your spirit. You have to be out. You have to get to that place where your reward comes from the revelation of what we read when we first started, your father who sees in secret. That's where your reward comes from. Your Father who sees in secret. The most powerful intercessors that have ever lived are people that did what they did best when they were all alone. They did not have huge public ministers. I'll, again, I'll, if I may quote something that Rick said at the turning again, that, where he said, uh, Rick Joyner, when he said again, that, remember that the greatest teachers that the world will ever see will never be behind a pulpit. The greatest prophets the earth will ever see will not be behind a pulpit. The greatest pastors will never be behind a pulpit. Because the greatest prophets and teachers and pastors and intercessors that do whatever they do, 
it's, it's going to be in living rooms, it's going to be in lounges, it's going to be in bus stations, it's going to be, that's, that's where individuals are going to be used, the greatest words of knowledge that there ever will be, because that's the way God works. God's into doing things out there on the streets, because that's where God works. Remember when I taught on the gifts of the Spirit, you know, and I always used to challenge my students when I was that leader of that Bible school, I used to challenge them every year about the gifts of the Spirit, show me one place in Scripture where a gift of the Spirit manifested in a church, and you can't find one. But that's what we, you know, this is our theology today. We come to church and we do our best to force God's Spirit to manifest in church where God's Spirit, if you want to see Him work, He works in the streets. That's where God will will manifest Himself. But again, wrong thinking causes wrong believing, causes wrong speaking. We've got to get our minds renewed to this stuff. There's nothing to prevent the Lord. Hallelujah. Can you have faith for that? I don't care what the statistics say. See, what if, what if the Muslim faith was growing uh, 180,000 times faster than the Christian faith? See what I'm trying to say. If that moves you, you don't have this yet. See what I'm trying to say? Because there's nothing to prevent the Lord from saving by many and by few. The issue is not what's happening on the earth. The issue is who is ruling from heaven. Do you hear me? And, uh, and the issue is, you see, we have one who is greater that's living on the inside of us. But again, won't it be wonderful when we get a whole lot more people who actually dare to believe that God is who He says He is and begin to live it out down here. The Lord wants us to consider Himself and His unlimited resources that are at our disposal through His faith. Deuteronomy 32.30 in the Amplified that's on the notes, very familiar one. It says, how could one, sharing the testimony of what happened when they came out, how could one have chased a thousand And two put 10,000 to flight, except their rock had sold them and the Lord had delivered them up. Verse 31, for their rock, speaking of the enemies, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. Hallelujah. I don't care what strength they have. Their strength is not like the strength that you and I have access to. Do you hear me? But God help us again understand this judicial system that I keep harping on as well. You have to understand the currency of heaven is faith. The way you appropriate and the way things are released on earth is when somebody aggressively agrees with heaven and puts himself in the position where they recognize that it's not the issue of if I'm alone because I'm never alone because God lives in me. I'm, you know, it's God and company. You know what I mean? It's God and company. It's, it's not just you by yourself and anything that you do. I can see that you're thrilled. Other scriptures to speak of this, I want you to turn to Judges, and I want you to look at this, this uh, Gideon again just for a moment. Judges chapter 7. Actually, I'm going to read some from Judges 6 where God calls him. Because again, I, I just, you know, this is, you see it with Moses. Moses says, who am I? Now we're going to watch it again with Gideon. It's the same thing. But again, I wish, it, you know, it would give people the leeway to have some fear and to have some doubt if God wasn't so consistent in his thinking. <laughs> What I mean is God is consistent in that every individual he chooses normally has this doubt, this self-fear within their spirit of thinking how, why they can't do. They're always so busy looking at why they can't do something. But look again at Gideon. It's familiar, so I won't take a lot of time about it. You come on down, and um, he's sharing the whole story of what's going on. And it says, and if I can just read in chapter 6, Josh, Judges 6, rather, Verse 6 says, And Israel was greatly impoverished. In other words, remember Israel's a type of the church. Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the Israelites cried to the Lord. So just like, remember, all of Israel and Egypt did. 
The Israelites cried to the Lord, and when they cried to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet. See, the Lord always answers the cry by sending somebody with the message that if people will obey it, will bring the deliverance that they're actually crying for. You need to hear this over and over again. It's the pattern of heaven. It's the pattern of the Bible. People pray and think that God's going to give you what you pray for. God gives you a message. God gives a strategy from somebody that if you obey, produces the thing that you pray for. Okay, that's the pattern all through Scripture. The Lord sent a prophet and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And again, even there, see, I, I don't want to keep, I don't want to take a lot of time with this. God will always relate to you his past works because he's trying to stir you to something called remembrance. That's why covenant is why it cuts and things, the whole issue of blood covenant is so powerful, what scars are all about. They're to provoke remembrance for you really begin to recount and understand the same God who delivered then delivers today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he did it then, he'll do it today. Hallelujah. And he will. And he will. He just will. And he goes on in verse 9. He said, And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them from before you and gave you the land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you've not obeyed my voice. So they find themselves in trouble as always God's people do because they don't obey. Then it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak, the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite. And his son Gideon was beating wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, verse 12, and said to him, Now again, remember it, but really listen to it. Act like you never heard it before. The Lord appeared to him and said to him, said to Gideon, remember he's treading out this wheat. He's actually, the rest of the scriptures will say he's hiding actually. He's not this great, great brave man of the natural. But the Lord speaks to him and says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of fearless courage. Now God looks at him, visits him, and while he's beating out this wheat, walking out this wheat in a wine press, actually hiding is really what it says. And the Lord's word to him is he says, I am with you, you mighty man of fearless courage. Well, in the natural, you might not see him as a mighty man of fearless courage, but remember our God's always in the business of telling you who you are. If you'd ever quit telling him who you think you are, he'll tell you who you really are. Because God speaks of non-existent things as if they already existed. God calls those things that be not as though they were until they are. And Gideon said to him in verse 13, Lord, if, oh, sir, if the Lord is with us, why is all this befallen us? And where are all his wondrous works of which our fathers told us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, do you hear the complaint here? God, if you're God and if you're so with us, then why are we all in all this trouble? In other words, you're pouring out the complaints, right? How come all this is happening? Now, watch how God answers. Verse 14, go in this your might, and you shall save Israel from the hand of Midian, have I not sent you? Now, I want you to read between the lines, because this is how God always answers. I wish I had time to take you through all the rest of the scriptures that are in my spirit right now. God doesn't even listen to that junk. <laughs> God just bulldozes past all that crud, excuse me, that's coming out of your mouth about, but where is he? But where is God? But where is he going? How come he's not here? Why isn't he doing something? God doesn't even hear that. Sorry. You may as well just flush it to Long Beach, as we say in the States. God doesn't even hear that. He just says, go in this your might. Well, what might? What might? Well, the might is what he says. Again, 
have I not sent you? See, the might of God is the knowledge that He's with you and that He's prompting you to do whatever it is you're doing. You and I really have to learn what it means to spend time alone and be quiet before the Lord so that you actually do learn. I'm telling you, one of the greatest disciplines, God help us, the greatest disciplines on earth is to learn how to quiet this hunk of meat between our ears. And I'm telling you, that's the real warfare. That's the fight of faith, is learning to quiet that quick, lightning-fast mind of yours. I'm studying something else right now that I'm actually going to bring up when I start the second series. I had a tough time yesterday because I'm, I'm studying four weeks ahead of what I'm teaching. I got all inspired in something yesterday. And, but I'm, I was uh, studying listening. I've always, you know, if some of you have heard me say years ago how the Lord spoke to me and said, great, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, yeah, you're going to be the servant of all. But great men and great women of God weren't great by virtue of their acts or what they did. They were great by virtue of the fact that they heard. And God spoke to me years ago that great, you have to become a great listener. And so I was looking and I was trying to find all these statistics that I used to have when I was the principal of the Bible school about listening and how retention, the ret statistics on retention of how much you retain after 24 hours, after, after, excuse me, after three hours, after 12 hours, after 24 hours. I used to have all these statistics. Couldn't find them anywhere. So I was looking up and trying to find some stuff. And one of the things that struck me was I found this thing from called High Gain Incorporated, which is an a organization that, um, you know, it's a leadership organization that trains career councils and what have you, the highest executives in the world and what have you. And along this area of listening, they're talking about how important it is to be a good listener, but they had the statistic from, this, from these physiologists that, that you think, or excuse me, you listen at the rate, every human being listens at the rate of between 150 to 250 words per minute, so I'm sorry, second. You listen, listen, you listen at the rate of 150 to 250 words, shoot. It's either per second or per minute. You'll find out when I get to that in four weeks. <laughs> you listen at the rate of 150 to 250 words, but you think at the rate of 2,000 to 3,000 words. Now, what that translates into, in other words, you see, this is why how many of us all know how good we are at when somebody's talking to us, we're not even listening. We're already thinking ahead about what our response is going to be. But the art of all real leadership, and they say and all this kind of stuff, is to learn. You have to learn how to be a listener. And you can say more and, you know, the, the, they, they give the illustration to this one guy from New York Life. He was, the, he's the most, he was the most successful life insurance salesman in all of America. He was the very first one to pass the $25 million in a year mark. And he did all this from, from uh, Liverpool, New York, Liverpool City, New, uh, New York, which had a population of 20,000 people. Population of 20,000 people. And he was selling over $25 million worth of life insurance a year. And his ethic was this. He said, because he learned this very simple thing. You work hard, he said, you train well, and you listen long, long, long. He just learned to be a good listener. I mean, there's all this whole story about these guys. But the point is, you really endear yourself to people that you listen to. But I'm getting way off of stuff. I just want you to hear what's going on here. You and I need to learn how to listen to God. You need to learn how to quiet this hunk of meat because you are thinking, if your thinking is not metamorphosized, if it hasn't been renewed, if, you're not, if you haven't been disciplined yet to think like God wants you to think, I guarantee you, your thinking will take over and, so, and move so quickly that you won't be able to listen to what he's saying and he's trying to tell you something 
Open up your ears. I am with you all the days of your life. That's your might. That is your might. Not your skill, not your talent, not your work ethic. I am with you. This is your might. Gordon Lindsay, you've heard me quote all these things so many times in his 1947, all the books that he wrote, a prolific writer, he said you have to practice the presence of God. Brother Hagin, you have to become God-inside-minded. You have to train yourself towards the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Paul said, Awake unto righteousness and sin not. I say this to your shame because you lack the sense of God's presence. You lack the sense you lack the sense of God's presence in your life. But what do we do, most of us? 99.9% of the body, well, I don't feel him. What's feeling? See, this is why we have, we have to teach all this counsel of God, the, the whole message of faith. Feelings have nothing to do with the fact that God said, I will be with you for the rest of your life. It comes back, I'm, it comes back to faith. That's just the tangible, that's the currency. It always comes back to this. God is with me. I am not alone. Hallelujah. Amen. I am well able to take this land. It is, there's nothing to prevent the Lord from saving by many or by few. The issue isn't how many are with us physically. The issue is who I have with me from heaven. God is for me. I guess maybe he's not for you. You know, you just blotted your coffee book so bad that God hates you. In fact, let's just say it because that's what many teach you. You know, God hates you, and like we talked about, you know, you've sinned, and so God's just turned his back on you, and he's gone to the Bahamas. And you're here, and that's it. Tough luck, sweetheart, but you're out of luck because God's left because your sins and your iniquities have actually caused him to depart from you. And they'll quote you all that Old Testament stuff instead of the New Covenant. Instead of what I've got 24 hours back there, that's what I finished before the year. Remember, all those things. You have, to, you have to have that going deep. You have to have that in your spirit. God said to Moses, this is the training of an intercessor. It has everything to do with being in there because when you're stuck in the middle of a gap and there's no one else around in the natural, nobody understands and you seem so alone and you like reason. Again, Howell, in that book, everybody thinks you're crazy and you're nuts. The revelation that I'm telling you, God has spoken to me. But this is why, see, don't get wacky on me, though. You know what I mean? If God, if some people, they say God spoke to them, and definitely it was pizza. It had nothing to do with God. You know, and it's true. You know, people do come up with revelations sometimes that are so deep, God didn't even know them. You know? <laughs> And so you, you know, so you have to weigh everything with the Word of God, with the spirit of the Word, with the sense of the Word, with the presence of the Word, because that's why we have that old statement over and over again, the spirit and the Word always agree. The spirit and the Word always agree. You may not find it line upon line, but the spirit of what you're saying, I can find if it's in the Bible or not. And I always tell the story about this one woman who, uh, this couple that I know real well in Spain that are good, good friends of ours that live there. And... Uh, she was so in, enamored with this particular woman who she said was such a, just in her opinion, was just like a mighty, mighty woman of faith. And, and she worked as a maid in some wealthy Arab's uh, place in Marbella, someplace. And she was always wanting me to, 
uh, meet this person and because this was a superwoman of faith and what have you like that and her, and her ministry was great and strong as far as her humility. And so finally she came over one day when I was in Spain once years ago and this woman came in and in about 10 minutes she just spoke to me. I, she started talking but I never will forget it. She sat and she said, well, God told me. She said, I never have to read my Bible. God told me never to read my Bible because he'll speak to me personally. I said, pardon me? God told you what? And she said, God told me I never have to read my Bible ever because he'll speak to me personally. I said, you're wrong. <laughs> said, you've listened to a devil. And I mean, the offense, she just went, but, 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 but. And my friends went, <laughs> and you know, I said, I'm sorry. I mean, I wasn't that mean, but I said, ma'am, I said, I'm sorry. I said, there's no way in God's green earth that God would ever tell one of his children not to read his book. Because I said, this is the book. The master said, you shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He said, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you should meditate it day and night. I'll show you 150 scriptures to your one statement that God told you God didn't speak to you. That was some lying devil. Well, she wouldn't hear me for zips or whatever. Anyhow, but, anyhow she's gone now, by the way, unfortunately, but that's not the point. I mean, that wasn't, didn't surprise me. But the issue is this. You, you, you can't separate yourself from this. God spoke to Moses. God spoke to Gideon. God spoke to all these people the same thing. The same question came up, who am I? And the same answer came forth, you're somebody I'm with. That's your might. That is your might. You're a mighty man of power. You're a mighty woman of power. But now watch what Gideon says in the next verse, which is again just like us. Verse 15, Gideon said to him, O Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Behold, my clan is the poorest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. In other words, excuses, excuses. Lord, surely you've made a mistake here. You don't understand my tribe is the least of all the tribes, and my family is the least of all the families and the least of all the tribes. So don't you understand, you've made a mistake. You've made a real mistake here. I don't have the degrees. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the, the, the degree. I don't have any of that. And the, and the Lord just says again, verse 16, the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall smite the Midianites as one man. Well, there's a whole bunch more we could go to, but basically I'm just saying God has to defeat our unbelief, and that's all he's attempting to do with every single one of us. If he can get us to walk in enough humility to understand that if you're going to do something with him and for him in this area called prayer, you have to have this nailed to the mast that I'm here in the name of my God. And I'm going to say it again. You've got to do this most, more than anything else when you're by yourself. Quit trying to convert people. Quit trying to convert people to what God might be speaking to you. Do you hear me? God is a God of individuality. God will speak to you in a way that you'll understand. I guarantee you, you try to interpret. I'm talking about intercession now. You hear me? I'm not talking about getting something to teach people. I'm talking about intercession. I'm talking about this wacky, weird thing when God calls you to stand in the gap. Remember, that's what we're talking about. Don't try to convert people to what may be uniquely your call, your project, your assignment. Because in doing so, you'll reap confusion from them. And you'll cause confusion in your own spirit, and then you'll begin to doubt what you're up to, and what God's asked you to do. 
And this is why I'm saying, uh, you know, when it's all said and done, this is a private matter. This is you and God. This is something that happens that's unique and strong and powerful when God puts something on you as an individual. Again, I'm talking about intercession. Everybody say, I'm talking about intercession. Okay, we're, we're not talking about just standard prayer and all kinds of things. The second, turn to 2 Chronicles 14. Again, I just want to run through some of these quickly. 2 Chronicles, give you time to get there. 2 Chronicles chapter 14, Asa. Hallelujah. I mean, it would be embarrassing if it wasn't so consistent how God deals with his people. You know, I mean, he's, that's why I'm saying there's, only, there's actually very few messages in Scripture because they all start with the same heartbeat. This is why, again, forgive me, I do, I get frustrated because everybody's trying to get out here in some deep revelation into this, that, and the other, but they don't have the basics yet. They still don't have the foundational. I don't care what you do in God or in church or anything else. This is the hallmark of what Christianity is about, something that goes beyond your head. It's deeper than your head. It's something that's written upon the fleshly tablets of your heart. I mean, it's cut in there. I mean, it's cut in there. This is who I am. This is who I am. This is who I am. I am the redeemed of the Lord. I am is with me. I am redeemed. God's with you. He said, I will be with you. I will be. I mean, God, remember the whole blood covenant teaching. God, it's incredible when you go through that whole etymology of it. I am the God of Abraham. And it's possessive. In other words, God was, Abraham was able to say, this is my God. See, God said, you're my man. He said, yeah, and you're my God. There was something, there was a covenant. Something came. You can call upon me. I can call upon you. We're in this together. Go ahead, God. What would you have me do today? Okay. And then God answers back, what would you have me do today? Because he's in this with you. That sounds so simple, but I'm telling you, that's got to strike your heart. God has knit himself to us. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. God's done something so remarkable. I'm telling you, I'm not trying to be clever every time I say it. 99.9% .9 of the body of Christ do not know. They do not know. They're afraid to speak that stuff out in front of people. Because everybody else would tell them that you're arrogant, that you're this, that you're that, and that you don't, you know, oh, you're one of those. And quietly you have to walk away and say, yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. I'm one of those. I am one of those. Asa Verse 2, did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. He took away the altars, the foreign altars, and the high places, and so on. Verse 4, commanded Judah to seek the Lord. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, to inquire of and for him and crave him as a vital necessity and to obey the law and the commandment. Also Asa took out of the cities of Judah the idolatrous high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under his reign. Comes on down, verse 8, Asa had an army. Of 300,000 men out of Judah who bore bucklers and spears, 280,000 out of Benjamin who bore shields and drew bows, all mighty men of courage. There came out against Judah, Zerah the Ethiopian, with the host of a million. And then it says, that is too many to be numbered, and 300 chariots, and came as far as Marishah. Then Asa went out against him, and they set up their lines of battle in the valley of Zeph. Zephatha at Marishah. Now verse 11, here's his prayer. Here's our prayer. Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none beside you to help, and it makes no difference to you whether the one you help is mighty or powerless. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. 
and we go against this multitude in your name. O Lord, you are our God. Let no man prevail against you. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people with him pursued them to Gerar, and the Ethiopians were overthrown so that none remained alive, for they were destroyed before the Lord and his host who carried away very much booty. And they smote all the cities round about Gerar, for the fear of the Lord came upon them. They plundered all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. And so, but wherever you go, I'm just trying to say all through Scripture, you'll find this cry that happens. Psalm 115, the first three verses, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Who, see, who, who do you want glorified in this thing that God may be talking to you about? Is it you? If you want some attention, you've messed up. If you're looking for personal recognition, you've messed up. You hear me? Do you really? I hope you really hear that. The purity of intercession can be actually defined in one phrase, one statement, selflessness. By virtue of the very definition, remember, it's the basic definition of an intercessor is one who goes before a king in behalf of another. In other words, it's not to benefit you. Selflessness. That's why it's so powerful. That's why there's so few, because most people are still endless to some degree for what it can produce for them. Jesus Christ stripped himself and he esteemed others. I mean, can you, Jesus Christ, Philippians says, esteemed others more than himself. He gave no thought to his own interests, but only to the interest of others. That's what it says. Did you hear that? Remember this guy you said you want to follow? His name is Jesus. You said you're, you're interested in following him. He talked about if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross, follow me. If you, you want to be like him, he gave no thought to his own interests, but only to the interests of others. How many of you want to be like Jesus? <laughs> oh, well. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for your mercy and loving kindness and for the sake of your truth and faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is now their God? <laughs> but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. I just kind of like that. They can say what they want to, but you know what? Our God's going to do what he pleases. And his good pleasure is to see his people exalted above the rest of the work of the devil. I want to tell you something. He's going to see that. Now, Zechariah, we're familiar with it, but I want you to turn there anyhow. Zechariah, but when it says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. But I want you to see some other verses right next to it. Zechariah is about, I think it's, what is it, two books from the second book. It's a book just before Malachi. In other words, it's next to the last book in the Old Testament. But in Zechariah chapter 4, Uh, it's, a million, it's, an, it's an amazing chapter. Read the whole chapter from the Amplified one, have you? But um, <laughs> there's all this symbolism. Well, I'll, I'm going to read it real quick, but I'm not going to preach it. I just want you to, because I'll put it in. Oh, I tell you, see, this is tough on me now because I'm looking at all these other verses that I've got underlined. Here's one of my favorite ones. I'm going to back. Can I read just because I want to? Zechariah 3 7. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts. Yeah. <laughs> Thus says the Lord of hosts. If you will walk in my ways. Now this, the Lord spoke this to me 20 years ago. And really just, I mean, well. Thus says the Lord of hosts. If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge. Then also you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. But this is the part that he said. I will give you access to my presence and places to walk among these who stand here. And that was prophetic. That was heavy. I mean, I knew that access is granted to all of us now through the blood of Christ. But I mean, he was taking the scripture and showing me and letting me see something, painting something for me about I, I just love it. I will give you access to my presence and places to walk among these who stand here. And I mean those who are standing with God in heaven right now to be able to walk and get the counsel of those who've gone before us. Anyhow, chapter 4, verse 1, just forget it. I just like it. The angel who talked with me came again and awakened me like a man who's wakened out of his sleep and said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with its bowl for oil and on the top of it and its seven lamps on it. And there are seven pipes to each of the seven lamps which are upon the top of it. Verse 3, And there are two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, the other upon the left side of it, feeding it continuously with oil. Verse 4, So I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This addition of the bowl to the candlestick, causing it to yield a ceaseless supply of oil. Now, uh, typology and symbolism here is it's fraught with the issue that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That God's bowl full of oil has come to dwell in tabernacle within you forever, and you have a ceaseless supply of God's Spirit available to you. This addition of the bowl to the candlestick, because you're the light of the world, you see, because he's in you. Jesus is the light of the world, but remember, he said, you're going to go and be that light. This addition of the bowl to the candlestick, causing it to yield a ceaseless supply of oil from the olive trees, is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, of whom the oil is a symbol, says the Lord of hosts. Now listen to verse 7, though, in the Amplified. For who are you, O great mountain of human obstacles. Listen to this, because you guys need to have this written upon your heart when you go against things. Listen to it. For who are you, O great mountain of human obstacles? you got to talk to it, don't you? For who are you? You see, God, most of us are saying, who am I? And God's trying to tell you I'm somebody that you're with. You need to talk back to those circumstances and say, Who are you, O great mountain of human obstacles? Before Zerubbabel, who with Joshua had led the return of the exiles from Babylon and was undertaking the rebuilding of the temple, he says, Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a mere molehill, and he shall bring forth the finishing gable stone of the new temple with loud shoutings of the people, crying, Grace, grace to it. Hallelujah. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house. His hand shall also finish it. Then you shall know, recognize, and understand that the Lord of hosts has sent me his messenger to you. And here's that wonderful verse in, chapter, in verse 10. Who 
with reason, despises the day of small things, the day of small beginnings. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Do you hear me? Do not despise the day of small beginnings and begin to dictate your own future by your present circumstance. Do you really understand that? Don't allow your present circumstance to become limited, or rather your future to become limited by your present circumstance. All through Scripture, God's trying to communicate this thing to us consistently, consistently. And of course, in Matthew 19, 26, is where it goes, and he said, of course, Jesus said, with God all things are possible. And then in Romans 8, 31, again, a very classic passage of Scripture where he says it. And again, you, you, remember I did all that teaching in the book of Romans, and you finish it, you come all the way, you crack, you have to really, remember like I said, you have to really crack Romans 3, 4, 5, and 6 before you can ever really comprehend what 7 and 8 is trying to get to, much less 9, 10, and 11. But he finishes up here in 8, goes when Paul leads him through that whole exposition, he gets to that part, he said, what shall we say to all this? But remember, all this is the previous six chapters. All this is the righteousness of God that's been imputed to us. All this is the revelation of God in man. All of this is the revelation of the grace of God that's to us. All this is speaking about the fact that, yes, you're in a body, but you don't have to be dictated to by the flesh. And he said, what shall we say to all this if God be for us? You know, and you're not trying to make it melodramatic, but again, see, forgive my frustration. We quoted, we quote it, but it's not, ripped into our spirit yet because our life actually dictates otherwise. What I mean is we live something that's different from what we profess so often because, again, we don't understand this necessity, this daily manna, this continual coming, this consistency, this consistency. He that looks consistently into this word of liberty you know, Psalm 1, wherever you want to go, he that meditates in this day and night, you should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water whose leaf also shall not wither. Whatsoever you do, it shall prosper. This book of the law shall not depart out of the mouth, but thou shalt meditate there day and night. It's an everyday thing. And I know that I know that I know that I know that you're tired of hearing that, but I don't care. <laughs> because that's the way it is. At some point, you and I have to embrace this simple discipline. You and I must be metamorphosized in the way we think. Otherwise, you will conform. Don't you understand? You'll conform to people that have a thousand letters behind their name, but no letters upon their heart. I'm not trying to be clever, but I'm just saying, so whatever God see, the thing, it's just, I'm just saying, the message remains the same, whether God spoke it to Moses, whether he spoke it to Gideon, Asa, Jehoshaphat, all through there. Every great man and great woman of God were great by virtue of the fact that they listened. They learned to listen. And once they heard, and it's an art, listening is an art. Once they heard, then like Isaiah 50, they set their face like flint, it says. They set their face like flint. I set my face like flint. I know that I shall not be ashamed. I set my face like flint towards Jerusalem, it said. And you just become a person of purpose, not ideas, not plans, but purpose. Man's mind has many plans, <clears throat> remember. <clears throat> but it's the Lord's purpose that stands. 
A lot of people try to come up with plans and hope that plans will give them purpose. They've got the horse before the cart. It's the revelation of God's purpose in your life that produces plans that are good. So this is why I so often try to use to try to tell my students way back when at the Bible school, so many of them want to know what the, voice, what the will of God is for them right now. And I said, you know, you, often you need to back up before you can go forward. You have to back up into the arms of God and discover the peace of God because the Bible says all of God's paths are peace. That's what defines something. If it's God, there's going to be peace, not in the head, but in the spirit that will define it. So often we have to, so often the situation is you and I have to learn how to back up and find our last place of peace and find that embrace of God so that we can then maybe have a running start to go forward. Amen? Somebody say amen anyhow. Just make me feel good. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your word. You said that the entrance of your word brings light. It brings understanding to the simple. And Lord, I continue to pray that we would be simple enough to allow the word of God to gain entrance into our spirit. That we would literally allow nothing other than your truth to permeate our thinking. Lord, I know this is a process. The law of process is something we have to grasp, Father. I know that it doesn't happen overnight. But Lord, you said you're no respecter of persons. You are no respecter of persons. You will not do for one what you would not do for another. When similar situations or conditions are met, if we will bow our knee, if we will incline our ears, if we will learn to listen more than we speak, then when we speak, it will carry some weight, particularly if we'll hear you and then speak what you tell us to speak. So, Lord, please continue to guide us and help us in this matter of intercession to discern the difference between projects and calls and assignments. And, Lord, above all, just help us to really hear what you said to Moses, what you said to Gideon, what you said to all of those that you've used, the first thing you said to every one of them when they said, Who am I? You said, I'm the person or you're the person I'm with. Lord, we have that promise of you today to such a degree, even a greater degree than they had, and that you have come to dwell in us. I mean, Lord, again, on this side of heaven, we'll never fully comprehend the fact and what that means and that your word says that he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. I mean, how can you ever separate yourself from us if we've been joined, welded, knit together in love by this blood covenant? So, Lord, we just ask that, again, you would allow us the great gift of patience and uh, endurance and desire. You said when desire comes, it is a tree of life. It will begin to bear fruit. Let there be a desire and a hunger, Father, that is beyond our natural scope. Enter into the hearts of every one of us so that we truly begin to hunger and thirst after this stuff, not just be curious. Because you said you, that you're the rewarder of those who diligently seek, not the rewarder of those who casually inquire when it's convenient. That's why not, well, that's why you said many are called, but few are chosen. But it's okay, Lord, because it's available to all of us. So we just ask again, Lord, for your anointings to become stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger in us so that we might literally be changed from glory to glory, as we continue to behold, as it were in a mirror, 
the face of Jesus Christ in the Word of God. You said as we continue to do that. You said, Lord, as we continue to behold in the Word of God, as it were a mirror, the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, you said that we would be consistently in the process of being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Amen. That's what you said. And I choose to believe you. So I thank you, Father, the more we look into this, the weightier our faith becomes. And you said you'd take us from strength to strength, from faith to faith. I trust you for that, and I thank you for it. And I thank you for these people that have ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.